This is Histories of the Unexpected. He's the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. And he is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is Professor James Daybell. And we are your hosts for Histories of the Unexpected. Each week we discuss a surprising object oozing with unexpected historical significance. And this week it's The Follower. Which is all about loyalty and self-seeking. Oh, and... And land. And, mm. and, and Twitter. <laughs> and Twitter. And shipwrecks. And shipwrecks. Um, if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, and tell all your friends. We're on Twitter. You can follow me at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow us, Histories of the Unexpected, at Unexpected Podcast. That's spelt P D C S T. We are proud to be part of the excellent History Hit Network, home of Dan Snow's History Hit, and other great shows coming soon. And you can find out more about what we've got planned in the forthcoming months. Show notes, video clips, photos of everything we discuss and much, much more at historyhit.com forward slash unexpected. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 33 of Histories of the Unexpected, where we will be audio googling through history, exploring the histories of things you didn't even know had a significant story to tell, like the chicken. Does that really have a history, James? The chicken has a very important history. The clock or the pageant? The pageant. Pageant. The pageant. The pageant. The pageant. <laughs> and we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how simply everything, even the chicken, has a history, and crucially, how those histories link together in unexpected expected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, that the history of Christmas was in fact all to do with the history of ravens and riots, or that the history of the study is all to do with walking? The man sitting opposite me is the master of mankind. It's Professor James Daybell. Hello. And the man sitting opposite me is the high priest of the past. It is the wonderful Dr Sam Willis. Together we will be piloting you on this uncharted, frankly highly dangerous flight into the past. Each week one of us will take the lead and this week it's my turn. Okay, what have you got for us? The follower. The follower. Which started off being kind of light and airy and fun, and I think it's become increasingly sinister. It's becoming sinister. I think so. The sinister follower. The sinister follower, yeah. The stalker. Mm. And we're going to dedicate this to our wonderful followers followers. on social media. Thank you very much for listening. Yeah, every one of you. Each and every one of you. Tell your friends. So, yeah, the follower, we were talking about our Twitter followers, weren't we? And we realised that the follower has such a kind of a significant impact in life today. And what struck me about it, which is why I really wanted to do it, is how before, I think this kind of whole thing about leadership and following seemed to be quite linear. Everyone followed a leader, but the leader didn't necessarily follow anyone else. But if you're doing it on social media, you're all part of this network. And if you're following someone who's famous, then someone famous is following other people. And it kind of goes round and round and round. So you have followers, but you don't really have leaders. Do you agree with that? Well, I don't know. I mean, people can use Twitter in the role of a leader to influence people. So I think leaders use it. I mean, just look at how somebody like Trump does Uh that or Brexit campaigners or, you know, I mean, the world over, people are using social media in order to influence people. And we think about, you know, people who are big cultural leaders as well. You know, somebody like Beyonce or Jay-Z or, you know, people like that have enormous followings. You know, they're leading. I think what's interesting is the way in which social media allows people on Twitter for example, to have interactions with people, to message them. And and if you think about this historically, 100 years ago or so, you know, it wouldn't have been so easy to get at somebody. You know, if you transport this back to, say, Tudor England, which is always my stomping ground, you know, actually being able to get access and have your point of view put across to a monarch 
you just wouldn't have been able to do. Yeah. So the history of the follower has really changed. We've got something that is probably much more democratic nowadays. It's being used in really interesting ways. And I think if we're thinking about how we start thinking about the follower, you start with those people who are the followers. And what is it that makes them tick? Why do they follow? You know, is it about fashion, likes, dislikes, love, hatred? Is it about ideas, ideology? Is it about politics? Is it about religion? Which opens up all sorts of interesting mm. avenues for us to explore. Well, I think the key point is, is that a follower doesn't necessarily agree with the person he's following. Well, no, and they can follow them for various reasons. It's more observing yeah. rather than, you know, tacit agreement. Or if you follow somebody because you get something out of it. Yeah. So there's this tension between loyalty to a leader and a kind of self-seeking opportunism by yeah. following. So if we think about factions, in factions across time, why people have grouped together or followed a particular leader, it's not necessarily out of loyalty to them and allegiance. It's about what they see they can actually get out of the relationship. And I think that's something right in the heart of it. Well, we've been thinking about this in terms of the kind of the human relationship between the follower implicitly as being a person that they're following. So yeah. that's the... Yeah. But what also struck me about that is we can think about it in chronological terms, in terms yeah. of descendants. Yeah. So ah, we have followed those nice. people. We are the people who are coming after them, literally in, in kind of chronological terms. So ancestors. Yeah, the history of the followers, to me, it's all to do with understanding history. And it's all to do with being able to understand what happened before yeah. and being aware that our understanding of the past is dramatically affected by the way that the people have actually written about it or have described it. And I think as a historian, being able to sort of really understand that what happened is different from what is described to have happened... Mm. Only then you actually kind of get a sense of satisfaction in doing history, actually, and mm. realising that it's constantly flawed, that us as followers are definitely flawed in our understanding of what happened before. We can never really get to it. Yeah, I think it's also seeing your own place as an individual within history yeah, and viewing the responsibility that you have, you know, reviewing the responsibility that you have towards others, to your family, to, to the world. You know, it's incredibly important. Also, we've talked about followers and we've talked about following in the footsteps of people. We can also think about it from the perspective of leaders. If we go back to where we started from, what is it that makes followers follow people? Mm. Is it about what kinds of personal qualities are there in leaders that draw people to them? Whether it is fame and people are obsessed with that, you think about the follower as groupie, the fan, whether you think about political leaders and why do people follow them, you know, and you can think about charisma. You can think about people who are just born into power and because they are powerful, people will follow them for various other reasons. You think Just about, simply because they play a pipe. Or the Pied Piper of Hamlet. There we go. Yes, yeah. yes. Just tootling along. And what you have there is that sort of mystical side of things. You know, people have this sort of aura yeah. about them. You also think about the terminology of following. You know, I've talked about the follower, the groupie, the fan, the retainer, the liveried servant. Mm. You know, we get into a sort of military side of history there. And think about the camp follower. You know, in warfare, those people who, the whole train of, of people who did all sorts of things, including prostitutes, following armies. Yeah. 
the hangers um, on. The hangers on. People who lived in the periphery. Um, That's actually really interesting, yeah. isn't it? When so much of our focus as historians is so often drawn to the centre. Yeah. But actually, it's the people who live on the margins that yeah. they're quite yeah. difficult to get at sometimes, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, it's a very sort of bottom-up model yeah. of how we look at history, I think. Those kinds of popular movements. But you can also think about it in terms of the history of cults. You know, so people who are drawn towards cults. You can think about it in terms of, you know, big popular political movements. You know, the followers of Mussolini or of or of Hitler, for example, across time. So there are many, many ways. Where are you going to start? Well, one of the things I immediately thought about was it's all very well talking about Twitter followers and cults or religions or whatever. But for me, what's really interesting is this idea of the follower in situations of stress. Mm. So things that test your loyalty. What happens when things go wrong? How does that following, how does that affect the whole business of following? How does that affect social hierarchy? Mm. One of the best ways of looking at it is looking at the history of shipwrecks. Mm. Where are you going with that? I'm going to go to the Titanic, essentially. Okay, I might go elsewhere first. But when you're on a ship, you have this kind of professional hierarchy. You've got officers, you've got sailors, you've got passengers that might have to fit in this as well. You've got people from all sorts of different religious, racial national backgrounds. It's a kind of a a sort of compressed society. Now, when that is tested, in the example of shipwrecks, sometimes it goes wrong. And it's very, very revealing about what that says about society or how it's reported. Mm. There are all sorts of wonderful examples of this. 1852, the Birkenhead. Okay, it's a uh, a troop ship. It sinks off South Africa. It's made of iron. It's one of the Mm. earliest iron things. Iron sinks pretty quickly. So you've got loads of soldiers on board and you've got loads of wives and their children of the soldiers on board. And the description is of all of the soldiers standing there perfectly in line, allowing the women and the children to man the lifeboats. Mm. In reality, we think that they were fairly seriously threatened to stand in line. Um, But it becomes a very well-known story of manly courage. Yeah. But then it gets a bit weirder and it gets kind of corrupted in history and it becomes a story of English courage. And that's fascinating. You start reading the descriptions from shipwreck survivors on who behaves how and why they believe it. The English will not trust the French and the Spanish. They think they are the most appallingly behaved. And actually, it was quite interesting with the Costa Concordia disaster. That's probably one of the most recent examples of a shipwreck where you have the Italian captain getting up to all sorts of stuff and the English reporting with absolute glee that he had women who weren't part of the crew up with him on the bridge. And there was a certain amount of properly nationalistic, you know, clapping and ringing using, of, of hands of stereotypes. It. Yeah, mm. so um, that idea of women and children first also gets transferred to the Titanic. Now, the Titanic is really interesting, and that's plagued throughout its history, and it's riddled with social and economic themes, one of which is this thing of women and children first. And everyone's very proud of them. The musicians carried on playing. The engineers kept the electricity going. There are those things. But in reality, it wasn't so clear-cut at all. One of the problems, of course, is that when you say women and children first, who do you actually mean? And what turned out was that the first class women and children were the ones who were prioritised. So nearly all but one of the first class children survived right. and nearly all of the third class steerage passengers died. So it's still hierarchy. So it's still hierarchy. Yeah. It's women and children first, but it is women and children first to a certain perspective right. because that actually right. doesn't kind of allow for any agency in the women no. or the children. And a lot of examples of people dying because they chose not to leave their loved husbands or their fathers. 
And so that kind of all breaks down. But the point about it is, of course, is that these kind of themes that we remember is just simply not what happened. Yeah. Um, it yeah. didn't what happened at all here. And the way that you now think about what happened can kind of reflect your sort of natural interests in social history. So a lot of people will quite happily enjoy the idea of the first class passengers causing a riot, being held there at gunpoint. And those who are interested in those stories are those also interested in the fact that the first class promenade deck was deliberately kept clear of lifeboats so that the first class passengers had more space to walk around. Now, there are all sorts of other wonderful examples of shipwreck, but I'm just going to leave it there on the Titanic. The point is, is that under duress, under stress, Hmm. following can go very wrong. And the way that it is recorded and the way that we then understand that breakdown is hugely instructive, both for the period of the event and also for ourselves. Yeah. So it's kind of like Lord of the Flies. Exactly. You put a group of people in a different sort of social setting and the leaders and the followers... Yeah, I've got a very good example, which is specifically like that. I'm going to come back to that. Brilliant. I want to take us slightly earlier, and I want to talk about Francis Bacon and bastard feudalism, which is what happens in the Wars of the Roses, arguably. So it's a sort of corrupting of the following. So I want to start with Francis Bacon's essay on friends and followers. Bacon, his dates are 1561 to 16. 26. He's an English philosopher, statesman, scientist, you know, this sort of wonderful polymath, a writer. He's attorney general and Lord Chancellor. So a really sort of influential figure, you know, in some ways at the heart of empirical thought. So about how we actually know what we know about things. His collection of essays first published in 1597. It's based on Michel de Montaigne's, you know, earlier and much fatter book of essays. And he writes a whole series of themes about what goes on in everyday life. And there's this wonderful essay on friends and followers. And I'll just read a little extract because I think what it does, it's almost a sort of taxonomy of the different kinds of followers that you have and the different kinds of motivations. And it's a good starting point for how the political world operated in the 16th and 17th century. He's positing it as a model. Costly followers, he starts, are not to be liked. Lest while a man maketh his train longer, he make his wings shorter. I reckon to be costly, not them alone which charge the purse, but which are wearisome and importune in suits. Ordinary followers ought to challenge no higher conditions than countenance, recommendation and protection from wrongs. Factious followers are worse to be liked, which follow not upon affection to him with whom they range themselves, but upon discontentment conceived against some other, which is what I was saying earlier on about faction. It's not about loyalty to you. They're basically being with you because they hate somebody else. Mm. And we can see this throughout, you know, if we think about that in terms of the people who supported Anne Boleyn and then were against Anne Boleyn, that's exactly what's happening there. Whereupon commonly ensueth that ill intelligence that we many times see between great personages. And he goes on and on and on like this. But the very most honourable kind of following is to be followed as one that apprehendeth to advance virtue and desert in all sorts of persons. So he's talking there about the sort of ideal follower. And I think what it does, it gives this sense of how society operates. It's almost a sort of conduct book to a gentleman for what kinds of followers they should have in their train, who they should trust. Mm. And, you know, this is a guy who has basically had a pretty 
up and down career, been very successful and then been out of favour. So, so, you know, this is coming from, you know, in some ways coming from the heart. I want to move on to just consider how some of the roots of following. And this is about how in early 13th, 14th century in England, we're talking about feudalism and how feudalism operates. And in order to understand that, you start with, say, a piece of land and you have a lord and a vassal. The lord is the person who owns the land. So this might be a medieval king or a medieval lord who acquires some territory. And that's sort of what he has. That is his power base. How does he gain a following? How does he gain loyalty? And he gives that piece of land or a fief to a vassal, okay? And in return, the vassal gives obedience and Mm -hmm. service. There's all sorts of military obligations that are attached to that. So effectively, what you have is a relationship between a leader, a lord, and a follower, a vassal. Which is bound together with land. Which is bound together with land. And it's all to do with military service and providing support and loyalty and service during times of war. So it's somebody you can call upon. That's amazing, isn't it? The whole of the country being parceled up. Yeah. So I'm sure you can see that in the shape of fields, the shape of counties. Absolutely. And that's all to do with securing loyalty and followers. And people who hold land by knight service are those that are responsible for providing knights or military service in times of war. What happens in the 15th century is that this becomes a more complicated relationship. Rather than it being merely land and service being offered, so you've got various other things that gain people's loyalty. So it gets tied up with money It gets tied up with office holding and it gets tied up with influence. And what you find is that rather than the Lord being the king, the Lord are powerful magnates. And so effectively what you have is the rise of the overmighty subject who's Mm. able to have a series of retainers, liveried servants, basically like a private army following him. And what we see throughout the 15th century, the Wars of the Roses, is a period of fluctuation in terms of monarchy. He goes from one side to another. There are these sort of pockets of people having their own particular power base. You know, people take the law into their own hands. And what you find is with the rise of the Tudors, Henry VII takes over from the Battle of Bosworth and basically has to go and stamp this down, control the nobility. And what one of the techniques he uses is what I would describe as a kind of political ASBO, so an antisocial behaviour order for aristocrats. And he bans retaining liveried servants, and he introduces something called a recognizance, which is a bond for loyalty and good service. You basically find somebody. There's a wonderful example of an aristocrat, George Neville, Lord Abergavenny, who is caught retaining 471 followers, which is against the law. And he commits these sort of misdemeanours over a period of time and is fined the sum of £70,550, which is like, you know, a million billion pound dollars. You know, it's it's stupid money. You know, it's half the revenue of the King of England at this time. I mean, it's an enormous amount of money. I mean, there's no way he'd be able to afford this. What the king does is very, very clever. Instead of making him pay that, he says, "Okay, you know, what we'll do is we'll reduce the amount. 
we'll reduce it to £5,000 and you will be allowed to pay it over 10 years. Yeah. Which what he does is he's not going to completely destroy him. No. But he buys him into, yeah. he buys him as a follower and allows him a series of circumstances where he can actually afford to pay for that. But if he's oversteps he's mortgaged, the line... Mortgaged into following. That's it. That's amazing. Yeah. So, bastard feudalism. I wanted to talk just very briefly about the Lord of the Flies thing, about ah. when society breaks down. I came across recently a piece written about the archaeology of shipwreck survivor camps, which is fascinating, and I never really thought about it. But um, it's based in Australia, where they have right. a number of 18th century, very famous um, East India ships went down. Mm. And the camps are described. Um, there are often court cases afterwards. So we actually know a great deal about what happened. Now, the point is, is that I've talked about leaving the ship, you know, how yep. you actually get yep. onto, your, onto your lifeboats, if you're lucky yep. enough. But then what happens? when you go to land and you actually camp and do you retain the structure of society that you had on the ship do you do something different how does it work and and there's a huge amount of variety there's some very famous mutinies the batavia a very famous 17th century one where a, a dutch ship they hit the rocks they go on land there are 150 or so the captain leaves to go to jakarta to get help and then one of the junior officers sees his power and systematically murders people huge numbers of people over 100 Gosh. and they have a own kind of constitution they legitimize theft rape and murder um his plan is to take the money from the batavia and set up his own kind of kingdom somewhere right. it's it, absolutely right. set, mental he maroons the soldiers to secure his own power he gets them all on a boat and tells them to go and find some fresh water and then rows off leaves them there and then they murder everyone who's a threat to it so the batavia is a very interesting example of it going really really significantly wrong there are all sorts of other examples of it going well and the very rigid structure being maintained on land under duress but um i have high hopes for this as a project and the material culture of it's going to be fascinating yeah. yeah and if they're lucky enough to do an excavation i love historical archaeology like that where you can look at the, the sort of the physical set out of the camp it's quite like anthropology really and it'll help you understand and you can use that to Look at the following. Yeah, right. in, in much greater detail. Well, yeah, they understand the effect of what happened to the people mm. who were followers mm. and who were leaders. And are there literary source of documents? Yes, they were. I mean, so well, that the, the, underpin that as yeah, well. Yeah, the Batavia is a great one. When they were actually finally rescued, the bad people who'd done all the killing had actually been restrained and mm. were under arrest. They were then tried. Hmm. So you have the legal documents of the trial, and you also have first-hand accounts of people who survived the murder. And mm. in such an extreme case, there's actually quite a lot of material related to it. Mm. So, yes, there is stuff Goodness on Lord me. of the Flies, which is really Goodness good. Goodness me. But I mean, one more thing I want to talk about yep. quickly is the following. I feel quite uncomfortable when I find myself in a position like a sheep where you're kind of, you're automatically, you're being driven somewhere mm. and you're following without really knowing you're doing any following. It doesn't sit very yeah, well yeah. with me. You're a bit like kind of penguins marching along in the line. And um, So you're not a follower? I don't think I am. I, I'm a follower as long as I can question who's in charge and make, make certain right. they're being sensible. It's to do with the geography of modern tourism, this. Okay. Ah. So Westminster Abbey. Yes. It's really annoying, this. If you go to Westminster Abbey, you are led in through the north door. You are not supposed to enter an abbey through the north door. You're supposed to go through the west door. That's how the architect Nicholas Hawksmore, 18th century, designed it. And it means that your experience of that place is 
completely different from how it was envisaged by the person who designed it. Now, it matters most at Westminster Abbey, and Westminster Abbey is full of the most amazing people buried there in British history. So Darwin, Drake, Churchill, Isaac Newton, you know. But if you go through the West Door like you're supposed to go through, the very first person you see is a lowly naval captain, and he's on the left-hand side, called uh, uh, Captain Montague. Mm. And he died at the glorious 1st of June during the French Revolution. But the whole point is that when you go through the west door of Westminster Abbey, you're supposed to actually be awed by the magnificence of God in this this place. And actually, you're knocked off your feet by reverence to British sea power, Hmm. which is brilliant. But no one knows that. He's by the front door. This bloke's by... His tomb is by the front door. And you don't get that if you go into the abbey in the way that you're supposed to. So watch out, everyone. If you're being herded around, especially tourism, it happens a lot in castles and palaces. Yes. You yes. never get to go through a yes. castle or a palace. In the right Hampton Court's a good example. Yeah, I, I hate tour guides. Yep. I, I mean, I don't hate tour guides. We love you, tour guides. I love tour guides, but, but I hate going on guided tours. Yes, I do as well. I much prefer to be self-guided through something. I went to HMS Victory, took a group there recently, and um, for some reason in winter, you have to go on a guided tour. You, yep. You're not allowed to to browse your own way around. And the route that's taken is re- often really very strange. Yep. And it does dramatically affect your sense of... Of what you learn from a place. Yeah. And it's terrible with small children. Hmm. If you're on a two-hour tour, you're not going to take any of that in, whereas I much prefer to be able to self-direct myself. Yeah. I thought you were going to go a completely different route oh. with that rather oh. than tourism. I thought you were going to talk about your sort of intellectual iconoclasm, <laughs> that you you know you were not a follower and you you know you were counter-suggestive and if somebody had a, a dominant idea, you would question it and challenge it, <laughs> which is what we should all be doing as, as, as historians. What I want to talk about, if we've got time, is Mussolini. Ah, the late Christopher Duggan, who's a professor of Italian history at Reading uh, when I was a postdoc there. Wonderful, wonderful man. Sadly died recently. Wrote a wonderful book called Fascist Voices, An Intimate History of Mussolini's Italy. And what he talks about in there is Mussolini's followers. You know, if we follow this through from something like Churchill through to post-45, I think there was this consensus that Mussolini had hoodwinked many in Italy, that he was a dictator with a very limited popular public appeal. Uh, you know, this was something that was perpetuated about by Churchill at a time when the Italians were mired down in fighting. Post-45, it was something that actually made sense and made life easier for people in Italy to accept that. You know, rather like Nazi Germany, you know, how do you deal as a nation with that? period in your past. And so for the church, who had, you know, um, uncomfortable ties with the Mussolini's regime, it was easy to accept that. For the people who were the bureaucrats uh, and the governors of the country, it was easy to accept that. For the, the Western allied powers, it was also in their interests not to destabilise a regime at that point. But what Duggan's done, he has looked at the National Diary Archive Mm. in Italy. And he's got a series of diaries from people from all walks of life, from all sorts of social classes, you know, teachers, doctors, lawyers, soldiers, sailors, journalists, artisans, priests, shopkeepers, you know, civil servants. And what you've got is their memories of that particular period. He argues that, you know, what we don't see is sort of virulent anti-fascism there. You've got certain sort of intellectuals 
like Benedetto Croce, for example, who, you know, who were very vociferous in their condemnation of, of fascism. But if you look at the sort of rank and file of people, certainly into the 30s, you know, there were people who saw democracy as waning and in decline and weak and were actually quite you know, taken with this idea of fascism in the same way that, you know, in the early stages of in Nazi Germany, people are quite taken with that kind of popular idea. Um, he's also looked at a series of, of letters and Mussolini had millions of letters from ordinary people, apparently got 1,500 letters a day. Wow. And people, you know, writing to him in fairly genial terms. I've got an example here of a young woman from Genoa who wrote to him after hearing him on the radio in March 1938. And she writes, and what's, what's striking about this is this sort of humility that comes across here. Forgive me if I, just a humble woman, dare to write to you and use the familiar form of two. But when I turn to God, I do not use the formal voix. And you, the two, for me are a god, a supernatural being sent to us by a superior power to guide our beautiful Italy to the destiny assigned to it when Romulus and Remus founded Rome, which will become, if you continue to guide us, mistress of the world. And it, and it goes, it goes on in that vein. And so I think what we've got there is back to what you were saying earlier on. You were saying that often the history of the follower is written from above, from the perspective of those who lead and charisma and carrying people along, what is often forgotten is the kind of popular mm. voice. And it's so rare actually being able to get so many different voices from yep. so many different yep. professions all yep. united in the same thing. And that's wonderful, isn't it, for a historian? I mean, it's one of the sort of joys of having a central organised archive like mm. that. I mean, Italy is an amazing place for records. I mean, Italy, throughout its history, the Italian states is a record-keeping state. I mean, you look for, say, the 15th century and the 16th century, and there are extraordinary, what are almost like diary form books, that manuscript books that survive in a way that they do not in mm. uh, elsewhere around yeah. Europe. We have an extraordinary number. And so you're able to know so much about everyday life, you know, and ruling, governing every aspect of Leading everyday and following. life. Yes. Great. Well, that was fascinating. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget you are the third and most important member of this podcast, so get in touch with us. Let us know your thoughts about the history of the follower. We've been all over the place, haven't we? We've been to Italy, we've been to Batavia, well, not Batavia, We've to Australia. Bastard feudalism. Yes, we have done this. Essays of Francis Bacon, mm. Mussolini. Yeah, and the geography of modern tourism. Yes. Thank you for following. <laughs> Thank you for following. Bye. Bye. If you enjoy this podcast and you like learning about the past, check out my latest venture. It's called History Masterclass, and it's a new type of historical event where you can actually learn in person from the best historians around today in unique and stunning historical locations. You can find out more at thehistorymasterclass.com and follow on Facebook and Twitter at The History MC.